Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. One court term that many people know of, but that few people understand, is hearsay. It's commonly understood as when one person says that someone else said something and it's widely maligned as untrustworthy. But is it really? And when is hearsay allowed or disallowed? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Edward Chang, the Hess Chair in Law at Vanderbilt Law School. Ed, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the definition. What is hearsay? So, the common understanding that you suggested is a pretty good start. So at its core, hearsay is when a person, and in the trial context, that means specifically a witness, when that person talks about something that he or she heard someone else say. And the key is that the witness hasn't actually directly observed the event that he or she is testifying to, but rather that person is relying on secondhand information. But that common understanding is only a very rough cut. So let me try to sharpen this idea in two different ways. So the first thing is that hearsay is not confined to just oral statements. So in other words, it's not just about hearing what someone else said, it can also include written statements. So for example, things that someone else said in an email or a text or some kind of written document. The key to hearsay is that it was a statement that was made outside of court and then that the source of the information is not testifying live at trial. The second thing is that, and this is, a little bit complicated and often trips up students when I teach this material. The second thing is that an out-of-court statement is only hearsay when it's being offered for its substantive truth. So this is what lawyers often refer to as the truth of the matter asserted. So let me take an example. Suppose that you hear someone shout fire and you call 911. And then when the firefighters arrive, it turns out that it's a hoax. There's no fire. And then you get prosecuted for filing a false claim. If you testify in court that the reason why you called 911 was because you heard someone else say fire, that's not hearsay. So yes, you are in fact testifying about what someone else said but you're not offering that for the substantive truth. You're not actually offering it to show that there actually was a fire. In fact, we know that there wasn't a fire, which is why you're being prosecuted. What you're offering that out-of-court statement to prove is that those words were said, someone said those words, that you heard the words, and that therefore you were justified in calling 911. So, in short, if we don't care about the truth of that out-of-court statement, then you don't have hearsay. 
what's the effect of something being hearsay? So if the out-of-court statement is hearsay and it doesn't qualify for a whole host of exclusions or other exceptions that are found in the rule, then your opponent can object to it and then it will be declared inadmissible by the court. In other words, it will be kicked out and the jury doesn't get to listen to the hearsay uh, evidence. Now, by the way, I should mention at this point that not every legal proceeding necessarily has a hearsay rule, but most typically do, and certainly most trial courts, uh, sort of formal trial proceedings, do follow the hearsay rule. And so then why do those courts tend to exclude hearsay from evidence? The usual reason that's given is reliability. And the way to think about this is just the children's game of telephone. So when you pass information from one person to another, you're going to have errors that are made. So hearsay or hearsay within hearsay within hearsay, so double or triple hearsay, that's all a game of telephone. And courts are effectively saying with the hearsay rule that they would prefer to get the information from the horse's mouth. They want the original witness and not the second or third hand information. Another problem with hearsay is that the out of court speaker, which in this business is known as the declarant, the out of court speaker isn't available for cross-examination because you're getting the secondhand person testifying in court, not the original source. And that means that your opponent can't probe that out-of-court declarant's perception, you know, whether or not they were able to see clearly. I kind of often think about the scene in My Cousin Vinny with the uh, elderly woman who has very large glasses. Uh, you can't test that person's memory. You can't test their biases. You can't test any of these things. You can't ask them any questions. And then there, I think there's one final rationale to the hearsay rule. And this is one that I tend to find most compelling. And that's that the hearsay rule in some ways embodies the law's preference for live testimony. So if you think about the essence of trial, you know, what is it? Well, it's having live witnesses come and testify. And if you didn't have the hearsay rule, then that would completely alter the way that trials are conducted because then witnesses could just simply stay home and submit written affidavits or the parties could just rely on a whole bunch of written documents. So what the hearsay rule is in effect structuring or in fact saying or, or um uh, or evoking is that we simply don't do trials by documents. Now, you said there were some exceptions to the hearsay rule. In other words, there are some hearsay statements there. They are hearsay, but they could be admitted into evidence anyway. So what are some of those exceptions? So there's actually a huge list of exceptions. Um, there are over 30 of them, I think, and some of them can get quite technical and complicated. But let me just give you a few highlights. 
So probably the biggest exception, and technically this is called an exclusion, but we can just treat it as an exception to the rule. It's the exception for statements that are made by your opponent. So suppose you're in a car accident and after the car accident, you tell the other driver, gee, I'm sorry, uh, but I got distracted by a text that showed up on my phone. Now, if the other driver at trial wants to testify about what you said right after the accident, that's hearsay. It's an out-of-court statement. He's offering it for its truth, which is that you were, in fact, texting while driving. But despite it being definitionally hearsay, the statement is going to be admissible, or at least the hearsay rule is not going to prohibit the admission of that statement. And the theory is that the other party's statements are basically fair game in an adversarial proceeding. If the adversary, in this case, it would be you, want to explain yourself then all you need to do is take the witness stand and say, no, I didn't say that, or I said something else and I've been misinterpreted uh, by the other driver. Now, beyond this one, right, that's the one for statements by your opponents. Most of the other exceptions are based on two key factors. One is necessity. In other words, the need for the hearsay evidence so if you don't have the available live witness, maybe we'll allow the hearsay. And the second is reliability. So how trustworthy is the hearsay evidence? And you can actually see both of these factors in a very classic exception known as the dying declaration exception. So suppose in this case that the victim of a murder just before he dies tells his friend that the defendant shot him. If the friend testifies about that dying declaration, that statement is hearsay, right? It's an out-of-court statement by the victim, who is now dead and unable to actually attend the trial, and you're offering it for its substantive truth, which is that the defendant shot the victim. But despite it being hearsay, we, first of all, really need the hearsay because the declarant is dead. How else are you going to get that kind of information? And then traditionally, at least, the law viewed dying declarations to be reliable because the idea is that why would someone lie on de their deathbed? And, you know, there are certain religious connotations on that, but also there's just the psychology, which is there's no particular reason for you to lie when you are just about to die. So there's an exception that allows these kinds of dying declarations in. There are other, there are two other uh, important hearsay exceptions that are often used that also share some of these characteristics. So one is the exception for business records that are collected in the regular course of a business. Why is that necessary? Well, because employees to a business come and go. And the other thing is that no one really remembers everyday transactions. I mean, imagine asking a bank teller, hey, did so-and-so come and deposit $200 on February 1st? The bank teller has no idea. So you really do need the record as the way to prove how much was deposited on what day. 
And then why is it reliable? Well, because businesses like banks, uh, if they don't keep accurate records, well, then they're not going to be in business very long. So you have both the necessity and the reliability. Um, another uh, notable exception is one that is uh, for statements that patients make for medical diagnosis or treatment. And so the idea here is that patients have very strong incentives to be accurate and truthful when they're trying to seek medical treatment because otherwise the medical treatment won't be very effective. Here, I think it's less about necessity uh, unless the patient dies for some reason and much more about reliability. So what the patient says is likely to be true even if the patient is not around uh, to be cross-examined in court. Are there any famous examples of hearsay statements being excluded from or admitted into evidence? Let's give the dry subject of hearsay some color. So I think the most infamous historical example is the case of Sir Walter Raleigh, who was tried for treason uh, in the early 17th century in England. And Raleigh was basically convicted primarily on a sworn written confession uh, by a Lord Cobham. Uh, and a sworn written confession, of course, is hearsay. So because the only major evidence against him was this sworn written confession, Raleigh was never able to confront or cross-examine Cobham. And at trial, he actually complains uh, about the unfairness of having a phantom uh, or unaccountable accuser. Um, so the origins of the hearsay rule uh, are often linked back to this Raleigh trial. Um, the hearsay rule ensures that that kind of trial by document uh, never happens in the Anglo-American tradition. Now, if you don't want to go all the way back to Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, a more recent and fun example is seen in the Johnny Depp trial. Uh, I'm not usually a huge fan of celebrity trials because I think they tend to distort the way that people look at trials and evidence. But in the Johnny Depp trial, there were lots of hearsay objections, including one, and this was captured on um, various videos on YouTube, uh, including one where Johnny Depp actually testifies about something and then catches himself. And he says, oh, that's hearsay, I guess. And then he sort of quips that, you know, he's learning, like he sort of understands what hearsay is, and he's not going to try to uh, provide it uh, to the court anymore. Does the federal hearsay law get things right, or would you recommend any changes to it? So overall, I think that the basic idea of preferencing live testimony over documentary evidence is probably right, right? We want to be able to question and probe witnesses at trial uh, if we're going to have a trial at all. So I think it's sort of inherent, as I mentioned before, in the nature of trial that you would have some kind of hearsay rule. But that said, I think there's a lot of things about the hearsay rule that I'm a bit more skeptical about. So 
The first is whether we should exclude hearsay when we can't have that live witness. So in other words, is it really better to have no evidence than to have hearsay evidence? And the hearsay rule is stringent enough that you know many times, even though we can't get the live witness, uh, we won't allow the hearsay evidence. So we're basically uh, taking evidence off the plate of the jury. Um, Justin Severe at Florida State has actually done some very interesting studies showing that people generally understand that hearsay evidence is suboptimal, right? That, you know, secondhand information is secondhand information. And that, in fact, regular people will discount hearsay uh, in somewhat appropriate ways. So if you have double hearsay, they'll discount the information in some. And if you have triple hearsay, then they'll discount it even more. And that suggests to me that, you know, a very stringent hearsay rule is in fact throwing away too much evidence and perhaps hindering accuracy because juries can actually handle uh, hearsay if they're given it. Another problem with the hearsay rule is that many of the exceptions um, that you have are based largely on what you might call armchair psychology. Um, and that armchair psychology really needs some rigorous empirical verification. So take, for example, the uh, exception for statements for medical diagnosis that I talked about earlier. The rationale that I gave you there was kind of the basic one or the conventional wisdom, which is that people don't lie to their doctors. And I suppose that's true for some things, but... There are many other things that you can imagine that people lie to their doctors about all the time. So, you know, when your doctor asks you, how often do you exercise? I think all of us kind of embellish a little bit how often we exercise. Or when the doctor asks, well, how often do you have a drink? You know, we probably minimize the amount of drinks uh, that we have. So it seems to me that this exception for medical statements is good in some places and not so good in others, and that the rule is kind of painting with a rather broad brush. I think the last point to make is that the hearsay rule and all of these exceptions, you know, I mentioned this earlier, they're, they're incredibly complex. Um, hearsay consumes weeks of an introductory evidence course. Uh, it's a big part of the bar exam. And still, lawyers and judges get things wrong all the time. And I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is whether all that complexity is actually worth its benefits. So if we had a much simpler rule, or maybe if we got rid of the hearsay rule entirely, it's possible that trial outcomes wouldn't necessarily be any less accurate. Well, Ed, thanks so much for being on the show and explaining what hearsay is. Well, thanks again for inviting me. Uh, always delighted to talk about the rules of evidence. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same.
This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.